right, all right, all right, all right. Welcome to the Cabin Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. Coming up, is the U.S. Navy an effective advocate for sea power? Is it an effective advocate for itself? The question isn't new. The service has been struggling with the issue for decades. We'll talk with the author of a remarkable book that examines the history of U.S. Navy public relations between the world wars and who found many striking similarities between the issues of the 1920s and 1930s and today. But first, a roundup of naval news around the world. The aircraft carrier Harry S. Truman continued operating in the Ionian Sea region of the Mediterranean Sea in company with France's Charles de Gaulle and Italy's Cavour. Carrier Air Wing 1 strike fighters from the Truman have been flying an average of more than 80 sorties a day from the ship, patrolling NATO borders as far north as Lithuania as Russia's war on Ukraine continues. Navy Secretary Carlos del Toro on March 17th visited the Truman at sea to view operations of the task group, which also included the Greek frigate Hydra. In war news, there were no major naval developments. Russian warships in the Black Sea continued to bombard targets in Ukraine with cruise missiles, and one of those small ships, the Corvette Vasily Baikov, widely reported to have been hit and set on fire off Odessa on March 7th, was seen returning to the Sevastopol naval base on March 16th, showing no signs of damage. It's not clear if the ship seen burning on March 7th was misidentified or if there is another explanation. NATO exercise cold response is taking place in and off northern Norway with naval forces led by the British aircraft carrier Prince of Wales. Russian northern fleet commanders were briefed by NATO commanders in early February about the exercise, but at least four major Russian warships, including the large nuclear-powered cruiser Pyotr Veliki, are in the area observing NATO operations. Led by Norway, cold response is the largest Western military exercise north of the Arctic Circle, since the 1980s, 27 nations, including non-NATO countries Sweden and Finland, are taking part. The Russians issued NOTAM notices to airmen for March 15th to 17th, warning of live fire exercises to take place over a large area off the northern Norwegian coast, although outside the cold response exercise area. Russia issued similar warning notices in 2018 during NATO Trident Juncture exercises in Norway. The USS Kearsarge Amphibious Ready Group with the 22nd Marine Expeditionary Unit deployed from the U.S. East Coast on March 17th. The amphibious ships Gunston Hall and Arlington make up the group along with the Kearsarge. And in new ship news, the attack submarine Montana, SSN 794, was delivered to the U.S. Navy on March 12th from Huntington Ingalls Newport News Shipbuilding and General Dynamics Electric Boat. Montana is the 21st Virginia-class submarine to be delivered. And on March 11th, HII Ingalls Shipyard delivered the Amphibious Transport Dock Fort Lauderdale, LPD-28, first of a modified version of the San Antonio-class ships. Both the Montana and Fort Lauderdale will be formally commissioned later this year. And that's a quick roundup of Naval News this week. As anyone who tries to have serious public discussions about the military knows, there's a constant tension between what many consider to be the public's right to know and legitimate and serious national security concerns. We on this podcast witness this and are part of it nearly every day, but these issues are not new or unique. Joining us today is Ryan Wadley, a naval historian and author of a great book called Selling Sea Power, Public Relations in the U.S. Navy, 1917 to 1941. Welcome to the podcast, Mr. Wadley. 
Hi. Pleasure right. to be here. All right. Well, see, your book covers the period between the world wars, but reading through it, I'm struck that on virtually every page, there are issues and situations I completely recognize. How would you characterize the relationship in those years and how, and how did it evolve between the U.S. Navy, the public, and the media? After the end of World War I, the Navy confronts a major public relations crisis uh, for a, a, several different reasons that, that, had, that, that emerged uh, at roughly the same time. Uh, first off, you know, the public had associated World War I at least in part from, from the, the growth of, of the alliance system in Europe, which at least in part was uh, fueled by imperialism. And one of the, one of the symptoms of, of European kind of power politics was the rise of navies and navalism. And so because of this association, uh, after World War I, when it appears that there's going to be a new naval arms race emerging between the United States, uh, Great Britain, and Japan, uh, the public, I would say, and not just in the United States, but in other countries, uh, is perhaps confused uh, and upset. And so in late 1920, as many voices really start to, to speak out against uh, naval arms limit uh, or uh, the, the, this, this emerging naval arms race, you see a rapid coalescence of a movement to, to put a stop to this. And this is what leads to the naval arms limitation movement that starts at Washington and then will attempt to continue in Geneva in 1927, and then uh, again at London in 1930, and then in 1935. So there's that issue. Uh, there's also uh, attacks that the Navy is taking from uh, Billy Mitchell and others who are pushing for an independent air service, which is at least trying to make the case that, that the, the, uh, the Navy as currently constructed is obsolete. And there's also, I think, just the, the general American tendency at that time to revert to, uh, you know, kind of a state of, you know, to use Ward Harding's uh, phrase, a state of normalcy after the end of the war. And so a push for demobilization. And so the idea and, and so the, the typical American pattern of rapid demobilization after 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 major conflicts also kind of plays into this as well. And, and you know, the Navy also has a number of of internal crises that it's facing at the time. Uh, as well, there's fights between some uh, senior naval leaders, uh, including uh, Admiral Sims and Secretary of the Navy Josephus Daniels. Uh, there's a number of scandals plaguing the Navy, and so because of all of this coalescence of issues, the the Navy really suffers a, a significant loss of public standing uh, in in the first uh, two or three years after uh, the end of World War One. As the as the years go by, the public interest increases, though, because we've got um movies we have we have visual stuff that starts to come out and you had you, you had the rise of, of media multiple multiple media uh, outlets that didn't exist so much at the beginning of that time period but by certainly by the mid-20s and the late 20s uh this was a major major media um outlet yeah. And the Navy takes advantage of this. The media, Hollywood, um, the, the motion picture industry wants to focus on the Navy, likes the Marines, likes the Navy, likes the, likes the aviation. There's a lot of World War I styled set, settings. There's also a lot of contemporary settings. And then the rise of new technology becomes interesting. So there are submarine movies, there are airship movies, there are aircraft movies. Um, and the Navy starts to get a little nervous about showing off so much capability and so much 
uh, and to, to potential uh, enemies. And remind, remember that throughout this entire period, from the very beginning, uh, the Navy viewed its most likely next opponent in a major war as Japan. And this, everything was, was seen in that background. It may not have been in the public discussion so much, but the Navy was, was quite aware of it. You talk about some of the concerns about showing too much technology and, you know, uh, movies would want to show things on, uh, you know, you use come aboard aircraft carriers and battleships and submarines and, and aircraft. And um, what kind of discussion was going on in the U S Navy in the background for all that? Sure. Um, so, yeah, you're right. As, as Hollywood really starts to become a major partner for the Navy, uh, this really happens. It, it starts to happen in the mid 1920s. It really starts to, uh, uh, to, to, I would say, uh, hit its peak, hit its stride in the late 20s and then really into the 1930s. And, and one of the things that, um, you know, really kind of drives this, as you say, is Hollywood is, is interested in showing new things. And so most of the movies that get made about the Navy during the interwar period uh, really showcase three things. Uh, there, there are several movies that are set at the Academy. Um, and so uh, those are usually more, for lack of a better term, like coming of age, boy becomes a man kind of, kind of films, uh, uh, usually set amongst you know, uh, academic rivals uh, or sports or, or something of that nature. Uh, but then a lot of the films will then either showcase the, the, the I would say, aviation or submarines. And so, uh, you know, some of the earliest films uh, of, of this period. So uh, one, one in particular that I write quite a bit about in, in the book and I've written about elsewhere is uh, Helldivers. It comes out in late 1931. It stars uh, uh, Wallace Beery. It's one of the first, uh, in fact, I believe it's the first major speaking role for Clark Gable. Uh, and, and it's really quite a remarkable film for the period, uh, uh, quite advanced uh, effects. Uh, they shot it aboard the Saratoga during spring maneuvers in, in 1931. Well, one of the things that happens, the film is uh, premieres in New York and, and naval officers who, who are aware of, of, of the premiere are horrified uh, ironically, not because of they're, they're showing off some sort of, of, of offensive capability uh, of the aircraft. What they're really concerned with is the fact that uh, the film shows the, the, the planes as they're coming to land on the Saratoga, the, the arresting hook catching the wire on the deck. And what they are really afraid of is that foreign powers will see this and, and potentially figure out a way to catch up to, to American carrier operations. It, for the most part, uh, you know, the British and the Japanese, they're roughly peers, it's not really clear how well warranted this fear was, but uh, it really kind of uh, drives uh, several months worth of discussion. And so in the weeks afterwards, there are uh, cuts made to the film. There's talk of actually just cutting the sequence out, which uh, would have been a bad idea. The landing sequence, uh, when the film premieres in New York, apparently garnered a standing ovation. Uh, and so it's really like one of the most remarkable things that, that the people had seen, you know, and it's right at the middle of this, this, this kind of aviation craze. And, and so there's a, a lot of uh, trepidation about cutting it out. And so the compromise that they eventually uh, settle upon is they put a black bar at the bottom of the screen as each of the planes comes in, uh, comes in for a landing on the deck of the Saratoga. So this way it kind of blocks out uh, the, the, the landing sequences, or at least the, the, the hook catching the wire. 
And so, so this mollifies the Navy, it allows the, the, the film to stay in circulation. Hell Divers will, will back then, uh, you only had a couple of prints of a film in circulation at any one time. And so the, the film will actually uh, travel around the country over, over the following months. Uh, and it will be a very, very, very popular film. But it, uh, the, the film as it, as it moves around is in this edited state uh, for, uh, for, for what the Navy sees as, as security purposes. But yet even after this, the Navy is still concerned about you know, how, uh, how its technology is, is being seen by, by others. And so uh, it's noted uh, in some uh, correspondence, some intelligence correspondence that uh, Helldivers becomes uh, big in Japan. And so it's seen as backdoor propaganda in Japan for, for you know, J Japan's the development of their own carrier uh, uh, forces. Uh, apparently, uh, uh, in, a few years later, the Germans attempt to procure a print of the film, uh, presumably uh, for their own uh, aircraft, uh, you know, uh, to develop their own aircraft carrier. Although one naval officer kind of notes, you know, if you just sent a guy to a theater with a notepad, he could probably get everything he really needed to get out of this. You don't actually have to buy a print and arouse all of this public, public suspicion. So, so even within the Navy, there is this tension where some are really concerned about it, and there are others who, who, you know, they, they recognize that that it is impossible to keep all of your capabilities a secret, uh, no matter how, how hard you may try. And there are a number of other incidents that happen in the years that follow where, where some in the Navy are, are, are paranoid and some are, you know, quite frankly, that it, it just comes down to, they don't see that, that, that the security measures are really worth uh, the effort. And, it, and it's probably best that, that the public and potentially our enemies uh, or potential enemies, potential rivals uh, can see exactly what our capabilities are uh, should, uh, should war, uh, war break out. Ryan, again, thanks for joining us. Um, I read your book in 2019 when it when it came out uh, as a career public affairs officer. I, I was particularly interested in you know what had changed, what had stayed the same, the the tensions, the story you just relayed about the um, about the Japanese reminded me of visiting the Chinese aircraft carrier Lioning with mm -hmm. then uh, Chief of Naval Operations John Richardson. And the Chinese were very proud to show off how much of their carrier operations was modeled on open source information that they had pulled uh, from the U.S. Navy, whether it was documentaries, whether it was Top Gun, whether, you know, a combination of Hollywood and, and, and just journalism. Um, and then, you know, on the flight home, we talked about and then and weeks and months afterwards, we talked about that tension between how much information do you share versus um, how much information do you want to uh, do you want to keep to yourself, right? I mean, who is really your audience for uh, for the types of information that you shared? Have you either when you were writing the book or since the book has been published, talking to folks like me or talking to folks in uniform, have you kind of adapted lessons from the period that you write about to where we are now? I mean, the coming of age of Hollywood is in many cases similar to the coming of age of social media um, and the use of the internet. I mean, do, are there lessons that you would say are directly cor uh, correlatable um, or would you say that they're, you know, do you have things that you say are completely different? In terms of adapting lessons, though, I have given some thought to to how the the, the Navy uses social media. 
on the one hand, I mean, the, the, there is a, a clear social media presence uh, for the Navy. Uh, one thing I, I had written about uh, a couple of years ago was the fact that um, a lot of the updates coming out of, of the uh, Westpac when, uh, with the uh, McCain and the Fitzgerald incidents was being communicated uh, directly by you know, the, the CNO and, and, other, and other high-ranking officials. And so they were, so, so these accounts had kind of a, a, a direct uh, informational purpose. But the problem, you know, one of the things that, that is very different from between now and what's going on in the interwar period is, is media right now is so much more balkanized than it was uh, back then. You know, uh, there's a phrase out there that uh, called the, uh, known as the monoculture, where, you know, because of the rise of mass media, you know, this is where you start to see like, you know, a dis, you know, kind of this one distinct culture taking root uh, across the country instead of having these, these regional cultures. And, you know, and I, and I think you can see with Hollywood, with radio, as uh, with the rise of, of national broadcasting networks, particularly by the mid 1920s, uh, you know, the, the, the growth of the wire services with newspapers. So, so a lot of people are getting the same, roughly the same media diet. Uh, back then, in a way that you can't really depend on on now, whether or not you're talking about the partisan split between you know, the traditional mainstream media of, of you know, New York Times, Washington Post uh, kind of thing, and, and someone who, who spends all their time on, on Breitbart or Fox News, uh, you know, so there, there's 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 a much more of a of a overt political uh, divide than there is. There's also just many more options, you know, nowadays, and so so you don't have. You know, films are a way, I think, of, of kind of bridging that gap. But even then, it still has some limited, even nowadays, I, I think the utility of it can be somewhat limited. I will say this, though, I am uh, very curious to see how, how the new Top Gun is received in, in May. Um, you know, I think everyone who's seen a preview, you know, whether or not it's uh, uh, you know, people who I think are our age and, and uh, 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 flashing back to our childhood or, or, or younger people, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very curious to see how, how this will be received. Uh, in, in the marketplace. But, but yeah, I think there are um, uh, some lessons. The other thing that, that I've also wrestled with that, um, you know, I don't think we really have a good answer for nowadays is even in the 20s and 30s. So, so you know, obviously you're dealing with, it's, it's during the era in which air power is, is emerging. Now it's not quite there yet. You know, uh, uh, Mitchell's you know, predictions are, are still some ways off. You know, in terms of, of, of when they might be relevant, but um, but but you can see the growth, the development of air power as, as this new uh, distinct way of war. Uh, but um, the you know, but you were still kind of coming out of this era in which a lot of national pride is being derived from the development of sea power, and so this is what really had defined that that pre World War One period, and. And so I think the one thing that we haven't really quite gra grappled with nowadays is, is how do you sell sea power? How do you sell, how do you, how do you push for a larger Navy? You know, when, you know, the not only is media balkanized, but quite frankly, you know, you're not really defining national power, at least in a cultural sense, uh, uh, through the development of, of sea power. You know, the, the, you know, it's still an a, a vital element of national power, but it doesn't really ha quite have that same cultural cachet that it did say uh, a century or a century and a quarter ago. So there's this and, and endless tension between um, secrets and public relations. And you, we just, we, we're talking about it, but it's, it's just as strong today. Um, 
when uh, Chris was working for former Chief of Naval Operations John Richardson, there was a chill factor that went out uh, from him about be careful what you say, the Chinese are listening. And that had the effect of everybody, of a, a drastic drop in information that was coming out of the Navy. Um, the problem with that is when you're trying to sell sea power, and that's the topic of your book, selling sea power. Mm. Secrets don't sell anything. Mm -hmm. Secrets don't deter anybody. Secrets, there's a legitimate need to have secrets. Nobody's arguing that. But when you go to Congress and somebody you're testifying, well, I'll have, I'll have to, I can't talk about that in this forum. We'll have to do that in a cl closed briefing. That's great. So you might inform that particular congressperson, but that congressperson doesn't have anything that he can take back to his constituents. He can't sell that. Mm -hmm. He can't talk to his, to his family about it. He can't talk to his aunt about it, say you should support this stuff. Secrets don't sell anything. They don't scare anybody. And this is not a new issue today. It just, was just as strong as you just talked about in the 20s and 30s. But somewhere in the middle, you have to find something. It's, 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 it's part of what the Navy's public affairs officers deal with every day. You know, they, they work for people who don't want to tell people anything, and yet they professionally understand the need to tell something. Mm -hmm. um, what lessons do, do you have from the 30s, especially the late 30s? When you're trying to build up a Navy, you're trying to put an awful lot more money into it. You don't have a country that's completely sold on the idea yet. You have, an, have a pretty strong anti-war America first mm -hmm. um, element that is a, a major political concern. I think something a lot of people today don't realize what a consideration that was. And, and yet you're trying to sell sea power mm -hmm. and, 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 and prepare for, for the future. So during the late 1930s, so there are a number of new security restrictions that pop up. I, I mentioned, uh, yeah. So after Helldivers, there there are some other films that that attempt to get made where where there are uh, security issues that that are brought up. Some that that are resolved. Uh, there are a few films that that don't. Uh, you know, uh, one thing uh, while I'm thinking about it to mention though is is the Navy is very careful in any public facing. Uh, material to not single out any one country, particularly Japan, as an enemy. Most everyone can read, uh, you know, read the tea leaves and see that, that, that you know, the, the kind of fleet you're building, you know, uh, definitely has, a, uh, you know, definitely has a trans-Pacific flavor to it. But, um, you know, the, the, so even in, in some of these Hollywood films, the, the Navy is, a lot of it, I mean, there, there, there are occasionally films made about World War I, uh, there's one that uh, comes out in 1927 that uh, the Rough Riders that's about um, uh, Teddy Roosevelt that deals a little bit with the Spanish American War. It's actually one of these one of these uh, classic like lost films. There there's uh, hardly any pieces of the film that, that still survive today, even though it was a big hit. Um, but yeah, outside of these historical mentions, for the most part, the Navy is really kind of showcasing its its peacetime capabilities, you know, and and what it can potentially do in war. And so a lot of it is about like peacetime competence. And so so the Navy is actually, I think, pretty ingenious in, you know, kind of steering into the skid of, of if you don't want to arouse any kind of political problems by identifying an enemy, if you don't really want to, to upset the public by appearing to be warmongers, this is how you, you try to, uh, I would say, put, put your best foot forward with the public. Look competent, uh, look prepared, 
look like you you are interested uh, and and capable of, of executing like national defense, but uh, do not appear to be aggressive or or offensive uh, uh, in in you know. So, so kind of getting around the, the idea that, that for the most part, this fleet, the, the fleet that is being designed and constructed in the 1930s is really all about power construction. So, so that's one thing. The other thing I would um, also uh, touch on in the, in the late 1930s is, is again, it, it's really about modulating, um, you know, kind of modulating the, 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 the message. And so there is, you know, so you can see some very subtle shifts in, in how the Navy um, tries to, to shift its messaging uh, through the 1930s. So whereas, you know, at the height of the depression, you know, the Navy, the Navy talks about like, hey, we can be, you know, you can use uh, you know, America's dormant industry. Uh, you can use that to build new ships. And so this will help us kind of uh, better execute our, our abilities to, to, to perform national defense. But as late 1930s go on, I mean, there's a whole lot more explicit calls in publicity about, you know, defending your country. And so, so these these kind of much more individualistic uh, messages, particularly like towards recruiting, uh, start to focus much more on on uh, on national defense. But even within that, I mean, the, the Navy. It's not as if the Navy just kind of closes up shop and goes home. One of the problems that that, that they run into right after World War One is the fact that that uh, Secretary of the Navy Daniels had done quite a bit to limit the Navy's. Uh, uh, efforts to seek publicity during the war, uh, uh, largely through security restrictions. And you don't quite see that same tamping down in the late 1930s. And so some of the stuff that still is, is seen by the public really showcases a lot about, about how the Navy does its business. One of the last uh, films that comes out right before uh, Pearl Harbor about the Navy is uh, Dive Bomber in 1941. And uh, it's it's a remarkable film. It's an early Technicolor film. It has uh, it stars Errol Flynn. Uh, it was one of the top ten highest grossing films of 1941, and and it's a it's a it's a remarkable picture. It's a, it's really about flight medicine uh, and just the, the stresses that the that you know, particularly dive bombing can put upon the human body. And so, you know, what, what are the what what can flight medicine do to to essentially prepare the human body for for such a stressful activity? And anyways, it, it, but it really showcases a lot of, of capabilities that the, that the Navy has. And so, so, so even, even as these tensions start to, start to manifest themselves in much more obvious ways, there are still ways of, of putting your best foot forward and, and not having to, to and not letting that, that fear of, of the enemy potentially seeing uh, a capability that you may have. They didn't necessarily let let that uh, uh, deter themselves. Try as they might, there were some times where the Navy still would would try to uh, tamp down things. One one uh, incident in particular I'm, I'm aware of is uh, uh, as the Navy starts uh, uh, developing some of the floating dry docks that will become key to to the logistical efforts uh, to to help uh, push the fleet across the Pacific. Uh, there are some attempts to try to uh, limit uh, public publicly released information about those. But uh, as they're debating, you know, what to do about this guy who had who had uh, released some information, someone pointed out, like, you do remember that there was an article published about this a year or two ago, right? You know, so anything you do now is 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 you know, uh, closing the barn door after the horse has left. And so, so you know, it it, it does become kind of a self defeating activity. But it does, I would argue, it doesn't really inhibit the Navy's ability to promote itself. Last point that I want to make, and and then uh, we'll we'll let you go. Uh, really appreciate your time. I, I was struck um, again as a former public affairs officer. Um, 
I had always believed during my time in uniform that good strategy makes good PR. Um, you you kind of capture that uh, tension um, in, in your in your book that it's not just the tactics. It's not just waking up one day and saying, "Hey, we want to communicate to the public," or "Hey, we want to you know talk to Hollywood." Um, you you kind of have to have and know what you want to sell uh, before you get out there. Um, and, and I think that we still struggle with that today. Yeah, yeah. I think you know one of the things that I think really helps uh, you know. The, the development of the of public affairs and and you know what we would call strategic communications nowadays back then is is the navy at least has a fairly distinct culture and identity that it, that it builds around uh, and so you know the so the three messages I, I focus on in the book are are recruiting you know, so how do you so how do you sell the navy to recruits and 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 what can the navy what essentially what can the navy do for a prospective sailor uh, how does the Navy manage its technology, both in developing new technologies, but also keeping its sailors safe? Uh, that's a major theme uh, throughout the war period. The Navy actually becomes um, quite good at, at responding to accidents and crises. It's really kind of one of the unsung uh, uh, stories of, of something that the Navy actually does quite well uh, during the war period, uh, going from, from from a service that that cannot manage uh, you know, the the public relations aftermath of an accident to to really save its life, to to you know uh, being uh, incredibly competent and actually getting praise in 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 newspapers for how they handle uh, the the uh, the aftermath of the sinking of the Squalus uh, off of Portsmouth, New Hampshire, in 1939. I, that that is a that is a remarkable story. So um, so the as I would say, as we, we look forward, um, you know, and, and as we think about some of the, 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 the other issues that the, that the, that the Navy has to face um, in, you know, in, in, the, in the years ahead, I, I think that, you know, I think, I think the fact that, that the Navy can kind of draw upon what it does well uh, is is always a good place to start, um, and and so in this case, like you know, I I, I do kind of wonder uh, if there aren't some some more opportunities for the for the Navy just to kind of showcase, because you know, right now, I mean, I think that the, the dominant image that the, the that the public has is you know even as something like Top Gun, I think still kind of permeates in, in the public mind for for a lot of people, you know, for 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 those who are are keeping track of such things nowadays. You know, what they see is like, oh, look, the the you know we've got we've got you know, four acquisitions, uh, we've got the 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 accidents with the McCain and the Fitzgerald and and other collisions. Uh, you know uh, the Ford, uh, you know the, the the Gerald Ford can't can't enter service. I mean, we've got all of these issues that that I mean these are real problems and and they don't actually reflect well on the Navy. But I don't think the 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 service uh, is is always as aggressive as perhaps it could be. And pushing forth, I would say some of the things that it still does quite well and is actually quite competent. And I and I think kind of pushing that 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 narrative of, of just quite frankly simple quiet competence competence uh, could could uh, really pay some dividends nowadays. Uh, uh, it, it just that way, at least if it, if the public doesn't care about sea power in the same way that it did in the interwar period, at least. You don't want don't want the first mention at, at the first mention of the Navy to to a member of the American public to be like, oh, aren't those those guys who get in accidents? 
you know, you just want to get get away from from I think that 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 stigma. And so, whatever can be done to get away from that, I think is something that that, that will be, uh, you know, again, quiet competence. I think could could, could be uh, uh, particularly value, valuable in, in in the years ahead as as Navy tries to figure out how to navigate kind of the, this new era of competition. For 15 years as a public affairs officer, I often wondered why the best thing we did was communicate the bad news. Uh, and it wasn't until I read your book that it it all kind of made sense uh, mm-hmm. uh, to to me. So uh, no, I, I think you're you're absolutely right. I think the uh, the lesson here is the more things change, the more they stay the same. What goes around keeps coming around again. Uh, thank you so much for for joining us today. Our, our this has been a great uh, great conversation. Our guest today has been uh, Ryan Wadley. Uh, naval historian, author of a book that we highly recommend, Selling Sea Power, Public Relations in the U.S. Navy, 1917 to 1941. And yes, it's history. And yes, it is current events just as well. So thank you very much for joining us, sir. Yeah, thank you. Now hear this. Now hear this. All right, it's time for Squawk Box. And Mr. Cervello has some thoughts on the Navy's communication strategy. Friends, when it comes to providing and maintaining a Navy, as stipulated in Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, I'm convinced of two things. You get the Navy that you argue for, and you operate the Navy you pay for. Central in both of these is the foundation of what you believe in, the story, the narrative, the so what. Free advice, have a so what. Grounded in reality, in truth, and make it easy to understand. Throughout history, when leaders have had a thoughtful and shareable strategy or an easy conveyed why, the viscosity of public support and funding was high. Things moved quickly. Stuff got done. Conversely, without a solid plan or when they play we have a secret, dollars and votes flowed like molasses on a cold winter morning. Programs got bogged down. Ships sat. People left. In the next few weeks, our leaders will go before Congress and either defend their portion of the budget or in some cases, ask for ads. More free advice. Have a good plan, a solid plan, one that you can easily and effectively link your budget request to. Speak plainly and then reinforce that plan through action and engagement a thousand times over. Tell the Congress what you need. Be candid and straightforward. Last bit of free advice. Truth makes for the best PR. If our leaders have a truth, can defend that truth and actively share the truth, this stuff sells itself. Very well said, Chris. Amen. And before we go, we must make note of the centennial of U.S. Navy carrier aviation. 100 years ago on March 20th, the converted Collier USS Langley was recommissioned as the U.S. Navy's first aircraft carrier, a concept demonstrator, if you will, that formed the basis for the development of the carrier into the U.S. Navy's premier conventional strike platform. The old covered wagon, as she was known, was relatively small, but without that ship, the myriad technologies, procedures, and concepts that make up today's modern aircraft carrier would have taken much, much longer to develop. So to the U.S. Navy's carrier aviation community, happy centennial. That does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Maradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. Be sure to follow us at Cavus Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening, folks. And bye-bye. Bye-bye.